our tradition has become on Sunday evenings, the second Sunday evening of each month, to deal with questions that have been submitted by members and guests of the congregation. And so that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight. Sometimes we're able to cover several questions in a lesson, sometimes only one. And tonight is going to be one of those lessons where we can only get through one question. And I just have to tell you right off the bat, I'm kind of leery of answering tonight's question, mostly because there's so much possibility for being misunderstood. However, because I think this is a question that not just our questioner asked, but lots of Christians ask, and because I believe that through mistaken notions about the answer to this question, we've got a lot of Christians that are satisfied living in unwarranted comfort, and a lot of other Christians that are living in unwarranted fear, on the other hand. And so I'd like for us to talk about tonight's question. Those of you here this morning heard what it is. When does sin separate the Christian from God? When does sin separate the Christian from God? My very simple answer, my simple answer to this question is, I don't know. I can talk about this for hours. I can tell you all kinds of things. But if you actually want me to draw you a line for every Christian out there everywhere that at this point they've become separated from God, I just can't do that. There's no way for me to do that. that that's whittling on God's end of the stick. That's His judgment, not mine. However, I think there are some biblical principles that we can look at to help. And I'd like for us to look at those tonight. I do want to start off by pointing out that I think there's a reason why God often does not draw some of these lines for us. Look in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul said to the Philippian brethren, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. My understanding of that phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is that phrase contains the idea of we are working as hard as we can work. And yet, even at that point, we have a healthy amount of fear that causes us to say, maybe I haven't done enough, and so I've got to keep doing some more. And I think the reason God leaves us in that position in a lot of areas is because if God just said, yeah, well, here's the line. It's right here, seven sins a day, and you're okay. How many folks would say, all right, I'm going to do those seven sins? Uh, we would get caught up in trying to draw near the line. What God wants us to do is draw near to Him. The spiritual growth that He wants from us is not one that gets to a certain line and then says, okay, I've done enough to please God. It's one that says, I'm always growing. I've always got to do more. And so I think God has specifically and purposefully not set up a book that says, here's the line on this issue and here's the line on this issue but causes us to debate and discuss and consider and wonder because what God wants us to do is draw close to Him, not draw close to some line in the sand demarcated for us by preachers. And so as we think about that and as we think about our spiritual growth, I I hope that will be a principle that we follow in trying to answer this question for us. Before I share with you, though, some principles that I think we all need to live by, I'd like for us to say a prayer. Almighty God and Father in heaven, we're thankful for your love and your mercy. We're thankful for your Son who died for us so that our sins could be removed. We're thankful for the comfort and hope that you've offered us through your Son. Father, we pray that you would help us to have a healthy fear, to remember that you are the judge, that if we turn from you, if we do not submit to your will, that you will, in fact, condemn us. 
And we will again earn for the wages of our sin death. But Father, help us not to live in such fear of that that we become paralyzed spiritually. Help us, Father, to be comforted by Your love and Your mercy and grace so that we will continue to strive and work for Your glory, knowing that You are working within us. Father, we love You and we thank You so much that You love us. And we pray that You be with us tonight as we consider this very difficult and thorny question, that our hearts will simply be guided by Your Word, that each of us will be lifted up with comfort where we need it and afflicted with fear where we need it. Help us, Father, to glorify and honor You in everything that we do. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, as I've already pointed out, as far as the specific answer, I, I can't give you that line. My purpose for tonight is if there's anybody here tonight who is living in unwarranted comfort, as I said in my prayer, I hope that I can afflict you with fear in that. On the other hand, if there's anyone living with unwarranted fear, I hope I can provide you with some comfort regarding that. The first thing I think we need to recognize is that if we say we don't sin, we're lying. When I was on the radio program in Beaumont, Texas, I remember receiving a call one time as we were discussing the issue of Christian and sin, and this person said that now that he was a Christian, he never sinned anymore. He said, why would I? If sin is going to cost me my soul, why would I sin? And so as much as I tried to talk to him, he just swore up and down, I never sin anymore. Of course, you know where I took him. In 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, I think John is quite clear in verse 8. John, an apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John himself, an apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said, look, if I told you right now I don't ever sin, I would be lying. Now, if John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is going to say that, now what do you think about our radio caller? What do you think about anybody who might try to say, I never, ever sinned. I became a Christian and now I'm perfect. Even the Apostle Paul refused to say that in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3. And verse 12, Paul said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Paul himself said that he wasn't perfect. He's the instrument by which God is, is providing part of the Scripture, and yet he's still saying, listen, guys, I'm not perfect. But I'm forgetting about all these things I've done, and I'm pressing on to grow. And so we just need to come to grips with this. If we're going to say that somehow we're perfect and that we never sin, we are lying. We're lying. I understand that sin is a choice. I understand that in some technicality, it is true that from this point on, you and I may never sin again. But I think what the Bible clearly teaches us is because of what we did to ourselves while we were in the world, sin gained such control in our lives that we are now growing to get beyond that. And like Paul, none of us today can say, oh yeah, I've made it to perfection. Here I am. I don't ever sin, ever. None of us can say that. The second thing that we do have to realize, 
sin can, in fact, separate Christians from God. Some people answer this question by saying that sin can't separate us. We hear of the doctrine, once saved, always saved. Basically, that doctrine says, sin cannot separate the Christian from God. There, there are two approaches that those who teach Calvinism take. Some would say that a person who really is one of God's elect, who really has been chosen by God to be one of the saints, will never sin so badly as to be lost. That's the position that John Calvin took in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. On the other hand, there are some others who would say that if you've become a child of God, it doesn't matter how badly you sin, you will never be separated from God. That's the position that Charles Stanley takes in his book, Eternal Security. So we see these two different positions, but both are saying the same thing, and that is that, look, Christians never sin, so as to be lost. It just doesn't happen. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4, the Scripture says, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. There were people that were turning away from the doctrine of Christ, teaching error, following the falsehood of going back under the law. And what Paul said was they had fallen from grace. They were severed from Christ. Their sin, their error would separate them from their fellowship with Jesus Christ. We remember Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And Romans chapter 6, as it deals with sin, was talking to Christians. Paul was talking to Christians about sin in their lives. And he concluded the chapter in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. He was talking to Christians there when he pointed out that if you keep on sinning, the wages that you will earn from that are, in fact, death. And then we look in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, Peter said, if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world. Notice that. These are people who have, in fact, escaped the defilements of the world. Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Notice, Peter says they were delivered from the defilements of the world. They have become entangled in them again, and now their last state is worse than the first. Now, listen, their first state was going to hell because they were lost. I don't see how anybody could say that, well, yeah, they're sinning, but they're still going to heaven, that, that going to heaven is worse than going to hell. Could you imagine anybody actually saying that? This person is in a worse state than he was to begin with. A person can be separated from God by their sins. And we need to keep that in mind. We do need to understand that. The third principle I think we need to keep in mind. God does not delight in the death of the sinner, but rather is patient, wanting all people to come to repentance. Perhaps you have heard this question. This is a question, the way that I often hear this asked is, what happens to me if I'm driving in my car and somebody pulls in front of me, cuts me off, and in the heat of the moment I accidentally slip with a cuss word right as I'm slamming into the back of the car and I die? Well, I go to hell. Well, as I said, I can't give a blanket answer for every Christian about what's going to happen to them right then. 
But I will respond this. What kind of God is it do you think that we serve? Do you think that we're serving a God who is just waiting for His children to fall so He can zap them in that instant and send them to hell? Or do you think that we're serving a God who loves us and cares for us and is working all that He can apart from overthrowing our free will so that we can actually go to heaven? I believe in a God that wants us to be saved. I believe in a God that wants us to go to heaven. We don't serve a God that wants us to go to hell. We don't serve a God that's waiting around to zap us when we make a mistake. We serve a God that wants us to have eternity with Him. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, Ezekiel wrote that the soul who sins shall die. But he followed that up in verse 23. God said, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God isn't looking around so that he can find a wicked person and just stomp him into the ground. God wants every wicked person to turn from his sin. If he wants that for those who are wicked and sinful, how much for his children? How much more does he want his children to be saved? Then I remember 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is this passage telling us? This passage is saying that God is patient with you. With each of us. He doesn't want any of us to perish, but He gives us all time to repent. You know what this tells me? This tells me that there is not ever a sin that separates me from my fellowship with God that God won't give me time to repent from. He is patient with us. Now, there may be a whole bunch of other stuff that might cause me to go ahead and die in that accident. But, but what I know is this, if, if it's just this one sin that separated me from the fellowship of God, He's patient. He's patient with all of us. That's the God we serve. And I'll tell you what, the God who can create the world in six days, the God who can stop the world spinning, the God who can raise the dead, can keep me from dying in a car wreck if He needs to give me time to repent. We've got to ask ourselves the question, what kind of God is it that we think we serve? Look in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, Paul wrote this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Do you realize what Paul's saying there? Paul is saying, look, guys, if while we were steeped in our sins, God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us, if He wouldn't even keep His Son there in heaven, but He was willing to sacrifice His Son while we were still out there in the world, while we were still enemies, while we were still just deep in sin, 
If He was willing to do that then, how much more is He willing now that we have been reconciled, now that we're His children, now that we're striving to serve and honor and glorify, how much more will He move heaven and earth to make sure that we're saved in the end? That's what He's saying. And you add to that Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. We've already read the part that talks about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Then you look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We're not working on our own. God is working with us. And think about this. This is the God that we serve. He sent His Son while we were out in the world. How much more is He going to help us overcome sin now that we're one of His children? I can't provide a blanket answer for every person that dies in a car wreck. But I tell you what, we just have to ask ourselves, what kind of God is it that we think we serve? I'll tell you, we serve a God that wants us to go to heaven. We serve a God that, for lack of a better phrase, bends over backwards to get us into heaven. And we need to have faith in Him and trust Him. And recognize that He's not ever going to put us in some situation where we don't have time to repent. And so we go to hell. That just doesn't fit with our God. Fourthly, we need to understand that God is looking for growth, not perfection. Yes, God wants perfection. We should be striving for perfection. But what God is looking for to have a relationship with is not perfection. He's looking for growth. You see, God understands what we did to ourselves. In Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Paul explains what we did to ourselves. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That phrase nature there doesn't refer, as so many try to make it, to the way we were born. It refers to something that's become second nature. The word that's translated there refers to something that we've done by continued practice and habit. What he says is, look, this is where we all were. I don't care how good you were. I don't care if you think you only committed some small sins and therefore needed a Savior. What Paul says is we all got to this point that we were by nature children of wrath. It was second nature to us to sin. That's where we were. And when we become Christians, God cleanses us of our sin, but He doesn't make us a different person. All those things that caused us to struggle the day before we were baptized are still going to cause us to struggle the day after we're baptized. Now we're starting the process of growing. Look in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Beginning at verse 5. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, Peter wrote, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now notice this verse. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these things, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter here is telling us how to never fall. He's telling us how to assure our election. He's telling us how to assure our entrance into the eternal kingdom. But did you notice what he said? He didn't say, be perfect. He didn't say we ensure that by being perfect. He said we ensure that by adding to our faith virtue, adding to our virtue self-control, adding knowledge, and these qualities have to be ours, and they have to be increasing. Now, I want you to think about that. If my knowledge has to increase, what does that mean about my knowledge? It means it's not complete, doesn't it? I mean, I have knowledge, but I also have some things that I don't know that I have to learn, right? That's pretty clear. What's that mean about virtue then? What does that mean about godliness? What does that mean about self-control? What does that mean about perseverance? If these have to be qualities that I have, but they're also qualities that are increasing... I'll tell you what that means about virtue. That means my virtue is not complete. My moral excellence is not complete. That means that while I have moral excellence, I've still got some things that aren't quite so morally excellent that I'm still working on. That while I have self-control, I've still got issues of control that I'm working on that haven't been so controlled. And I've got to grow in that. This is the person that Peter says is assured a place in the eternal kingdom. Someone who has a little bit of not virtue in them. Someone who has a little bit of not self-control. Why? Because they're growing. See, that's the issue. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for people who will grow in His grace and in His knowledge. He's looking for people who will be better today than they were yesterday. He's looking for people who are better now than they were a year ago. The fact is, if you are still sinning just as much as you did before you became a Christian, you've got an issue, you've got a problem. If you can look over the past year and you can say, you know what, I've just stalled out, I haven't grown at all, it doesn't matter what level your spirituality is. Peter says you're in danger. The question that we need to be asking is, are we growing? Galatians 5 talks about the war between the flesh and the spirit. Are we removing the works of the flesh from our lives? Or are we still indulging in them just as much as we always have? Are we increasing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Or are we neglecting them just as much as we always have? That's the question. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for growth. Yes, yes. We need to be striving for perfection. I'm not trying to say that we allow this, well, Peter wasn't, or Paul wasn't perfect, and Peter wasn't perfect, and to, to let us say, oh, it's okay for me to just keep sinning. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just trying to point out what the Bible says about who is assured a place in heaven. It's not the person who's perfect. Even Paul wouldn't have made sin. It's the person who's growing. And so that's what we need to be asking ourselves. Not, did I accidentally slip in the car because somebody pulled out in front of me, but am I growing? Do I slip as much as I used to slip? That's what we need to be asking. The fifth thing that we need to consider, we do need to understand this. Willful, deliberate, rebellious sin will remove the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now I want to be very careful here 
Because I don't want to teach anything that makes it sound like there are just these levels of sin. I know that our, our Roman Catholic friends teach us that there are two different kinds of sin. Mortal and venial. The mortal sins that condemn our soul and Jesus had to die, that's the only way those can be forgiven. But then there's those venial sins that we can work out on our own. I, I don't want to teach any type of levels of sin. And yet I think the Bible does teach us that there is a difference between the Christian that is striving to grow but still struggling between the Christian that is ignorant because they're still growing in their knowledge and the Christian who knowingly, willfully, deliberately, and rebelliously sins against God. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read verse 25 a lot. We need to keep on reading. Notice verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26 says, If we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. As far as I understand, it only takes one of these. If I go on sinning, I go into the watery grave of baptism, I come up and I say to myself, I don't care if this is a sin, I'm going to do it anyway. That's it. There's no longer a sacrifice for me. I've, I've got to repent of that, I've got to turn away from it and humbly submit to God. I know that causes us a little bit of problems, but I want you to think about what about our own kids? Don't we remember in raising our children that we saw a difference? We see, if we're still raising our kids, a difference between the child who does something wrong because they're ignorant of the issue at hand and a difference between the child who's been trying to do better and we know they're trying to do better, but they just they mess up sometimes. Don't we see a difference between them and the child who willfully, deliberately rejects our parenting and our instruction and our direction through rebellion? I mean, think about it. The child who's ignorant of something, what do we do? We educate them. We enlighten them. The child who's struggling but messes up still, what do we do? We discipline. We encourage. But the child who rebels, what do we do? Well, I probably shouldn't tell you what we do at my house. That'll get me in trouble. But we punish, don't we? Well, we see the difference there, and I think God says that He sees that same difference. There's a difference between the one who struggles but is striving to do right, the one who is ignorant, and the one who is rebelling. God sees that difference just like we do. Willful, rebellious, deliberate sin, that's it. There's no more sacrifice. And we're removed from fellowship with God. Now, I do want to make one more point here before we leave this. Let somebody come back and say, oh, Edwin taught that it would be better if we let all the new Christians just be ignorant because then their sins wouldn't be held against them. I know that's what somebody's thinking. That's not my point at all because remember the last point, what is required of us? Growth. And I have no doubt that at some point, somebody who just allows themselves to remain ignorant because they aren't growing in knowledge God will at some point review them, view them as rebellious because they aren't growing. So the answer to this is not just let everybody be ignorant and then God won't count our sins. No, because if we stay ignorant, then we're not growing, and that means we fall out of our relationship with God, right? We need to understand that. So what we've got to be doing is we've got to be teaching people. But once they come to that knowledge, if they willfully and rebelliously defy God, that's it. That's it. But please don't use that as an excuse just to remain ignorant. You've got to study. You've got to learn so that you can know what sin is, so that you can overcome. 
We must walk in the light and not walk in the darkness. Perhaps the passage that most addresses the question that we're dealing with tonight is 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, all the way through 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Now this passage doesn't draw any lines for us either. But it does provide a picture that explains what we are supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. We are supposed to walk in the light. We are not supposed to walk in darkness. Now, does walking in the light mean that I never, ever sin? Am I walking in the darkness because I slipped up once today or twice? It appears to me that that's not the case, because as John talks about walking in the light, he says, if I told you I never sinned, I'd be lying to you. So here's a guy that sins on occasion, and yet still says he's walking in the light. This is talking about the way our lives are run generally. If I'm walking in sin, if I'm living in sin, a couple of obediences a day is not going to make up for that. But what John is pointing out is, is if I'm living in Christ, if I'm striving to do His will, if I'm growing, then the fact that I slipped up a couple of times yesterday doesn't mean I'm going to hell right now. And I think we see two sides of this. Again, like I said earlier, there's the side that says, if I've been resting comfortably thinking that, oh, the grace of God means it's okay, it doesn't matter, I'm just letting sin fly. God, man, I need to be filled with the fear of God. Because what John points out is, look, if you're walking in the darkness, if you're not living by the commandments of God, you're lost. You're not in fellowship with God. But on the other hand, there's also the comfort that as I'm striving to serve the Lord and do His will, the fact that I still mess up sometimes doesn't mean that I'm suddenly this really bad guy that's going to hell if I died tonight. I'm walking in the light. I'm living by the commands of God. I'm growing. I'm confessing my sins as I realize them. And I think we need to understand something about this. I think that at times we have misunderstood the place of confession. I've heard people preach. In fact, there's probably been times when I've said it. You know, they'll talk about we're in our assemblies, and the guy who leads the first prayer, in there he always says, God, forgive us of our sins. And then we get to the prayer at the Lord's Supper, and they say, Lord, forgive us of our sins. And then Edwin leads that prayer in the sermon. He says, forgive us of our sins. And then the guy at the end says, forgive us of our sins. Have you ever heard anybody say, what all sins are you all committing during the assembly? 
And it's like they have this idea that the purpose of confession is to catch up. That I don't have to confess that I'm a sinner unless I've sinned again since the last time I prayed. And that's not the picture that John is presenting here. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that Christians will sometimes ridicule the Roman Catholics with their view of confession as if they can sin a bunch and then go in and confess it and just wipe it clean. And yet that's exactly the way a lot of Christians view confession with God. You know, I got baptized and that took care of all my sins up to then. Oh, I sinned again. I better confess that one. Oh, I, probably, I sinned ten times today. I better confess ten times. Some folks have this idea that, well, I'll tell you what I do just every night. I confess my sins, and that just cleans me for the day. Hopefully I'll die in my sleep so that I'll be all right. Because I caught up. That's not what John is saying. John is talking about someone who recognizes their sinfulness and therefore confesses their sin. Included in that is the Christian who sins and recognizes it. He confesses that sin as he recognizes it. But he's not talking about some issue of having to catch up on all our sins, otherwise we'd go to hell. We didn't keep, keep our confessions up. See, we need to understand this. Christianity is not a religion of perfect confession any more than it's a religion of perfect living. That's not what Christianity is. I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me of that tax collector in Luke chapter 18 and verse 13 who stood before the Lord and said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said he went away justified. Let me ask you a question about that man. If he prayed to God again an hour later, and he had not sinned in that hour, would he then be allowed to pray to God, Oh God, I thank you that I'm so righteous. I thank you that I'm cleansed. I thank you that I'm not like all those other people who never sinned. Would he be able to do that? Or would he have to say the exact same prayer again? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. That's the prayer you better be saying to the Lord. Even if for some miraculous chance over the last ten years you've never sinned, you still need to be praying that prayer. Because that is exactly what we are. And we need God's mercy. And that's what John is talking about. The recognition that I am a sinner and need God's forgiveness. And therefore, when I do sin, I recognize that and I confess that too. John is not giving us a picture of, I accidentally slipped up and now I'm walking in darkness until I confess it and then I'm back in the light. That's not what he's teaching us at all. He's teaching us that if we're walking in the light, if we're striving to serve God, we're following His commands, confessing our sins as we recognize them, then we're walking in the light and God cleanses us of our sins. But if we're discarding the Word of God, if we're living however we want, if we're not growing, if we hate our brother, I think that's interesting that in the book of 1 John, that's one of the things he hones in on, the way we treat other people. I'll tell you what. Okay, this, this is off the cuff. I probably shouldn't say this. I always regret it when I add things in from lectern. But you know what? I tell you, the way I've seen some brethren treat each other, it's amazing that they try to act like they keep their confessions up. And so they're going to heaven. Because what John says is, if you don't treat your brothers right, you're walking in darkness. I, I threw that one in for free. I'm sure I'll regret it later, but hopefully that'll help us grow a little bit. We've got to be treating each other right. Otherwise, John says we're walking in darkness. 
finally, if we allow grace to be a license to sin, we will die in our sins. One of my biggest fears about what I've presented to you tonight is I'm afraid that some folks, despite every caveat I've given, despite trying to cover my tracks, I'm afraid that somebody's going to leave saying, well, Edwin said it's all right for us to sin. And that's not what I'm saying at all. That is not what I'm saying at all. Paul dealt with that in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? When we were baptized with Christ, we were buried with Him, we were dying to our sins, and we were committing to no longer live in sin. And every sin is dangerous. Every sin is bad. Please don't leave here tonight saying that Edwin said it's all right if I commit, you know, five or six sins. I'll be okay. That's not what I'm saying at all. All I'm saying is, is that as we're growing in Christ, the fact that we messed up yesterday doesn't mean we're going to hell today. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that because of God's grace you can go ahead and plan to sin a couple times tomorrow. Because Paul points out here that every sin is dangerous. And every sin threatens to separate us from God. Whether it's rebellious or not. When we slip, we are on dangerous ground. And Paul approaches it really within this context of Romans 6-8 through from two standpoints. Number one, just a doctrinal standpoint. The doctrinal standpoint is that, look, sin is dangerous. We're not supposed to be submitting ourselves to sin. There in verse 15 it says, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that we're supposed to be submitting ourselves to God, presenting our members as instruments of righteousness, not sin. We're supposed to be doing righteous things. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But he also presents it from the standpoint of just practical, natural consequences. The fact is, if we let any sin slide in our lives, acting like it's just not a big deal, we risk sin taking over. We're giving Satan a foothold in our lives again. We'll go back to our, I slipped and said a cuss word in the car. You know, I might comfort you and say, look, if you did that and you died, you'd probably still go to heaven. If that caused you to say, well, it's not a big deal then if if I hit my thumb with a hammer and I cuss. That's not a big deal. Except for the problem is when you do that, you've now trained your body once again to respond with sin when something happens. What's going to happen the next time you hit it with a hammer? What's going to happen the next time you're scared? And then once you do it again and again and again, eventually you're right back to where you were before you became a child of God. And sin has taken over. And then we've earned the wages of death again. In verse 11 of Romans 6 it says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. If we allow sin to slide in our lives, all we're going to do is let sin take dominion. And then we'll be separated from God. 
Don't allow anything I've said tonight to make you think it's okay to sin. Some sins don't matter. I'm not saying that at all. We've got to work to overcome sin. We've got to learn to control our tongues, our thoughts, our actions. But as we're learning that, the fact that we still mess up sometimes doesn't mean we're immediately going to hell. That's why Jesus died. It's a balance. We've got to see both sides of this all at the same time, and that's tough. It's tough. I've heard people debate this, and they end up on one side or the other. And they argue and lob grenades at each other, when in reality, the, the truth is right down the middle of this. And we've got to work on that balance of I'm growing in Christ. That's what Christ wants. I, I'm sorry that I can't draw a line for you. But as I said, I think the reason God didn't just say, all right, here, here's, where I, here's where that line is. Here's when I say you're rebellious. Here's when I say... It's because what He wants us to do is to continue working. No matter where you are, no matter how much you've grown, what God wants is for you to keep growing. And when you've done that, when you've done that, you've done what God wants. And you're in fellowship with God. I hope I've accomplished my two goals. If you've been letting sin slide in your life and you've just felt comfort because of the grace of Jesus, but you've been overlooking sin and letting it slip by, I hope that you have the fear of God in your life right now. Because I'm telling you, if you're doing that, you're going to hell. But on the other hand, if you're striving to serve the Lord, you're growing in Christ, you're, you're working as hard as you can, you're studying your Bible, you're praying, you're getting together with other folks and growing together, and you messed up yesterday and now you're in fear that maybe that's it, it's over, I hope I was able to give you some comfort. But that's why Jesus died. If I've accomplished that, then I've accomplished my goal with this sermon. Otherwise, I've probably only opened myself up to get people mad at me about it. But I hope what I've shared with you has helped you as a Christian. Be encouraged to grow in Christ. Don't allow grace to be a license to sin, but grow.